Welcome to the Start of Grind podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. You're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you gotta be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a Startup Grind. Startup Grind is supported by Soylent, the galaxy's easiest meal. Soylent is a nutritionally complete, ready-to-drink meal in a bottle, a simple solution to the substantial amount of time and money most people spend maintaining healthy diets. The latest formula, Soylent 2.0, offers a pleasantly subtle flavor, a smooth texture, and a lasting fullness. Soylent began as a crowd-funded startup. After reaching fundraising goals within just two hours of the campaign's launch, Soylent attracted the attention of venture capitalists, allowing the company to scale to the multi-million dollar market leader it is today. Having been there themselves, Soylent supports the entrepreneurial spirit in everyone. Learn more and subscribe at Soylent.com. Use the promo code StartupGrind for 10% off your first subscription. That's Soylent.com, promo code StartupGrind. Hey there and welcome to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have a chat with Daniel Clausen, Senior Director within the Innovation Strategy Department at Marriott International. Prior to joining Marriott, Daniel led the complete redevelopment of the public broadcasting system's digital strategy, including all of their mobile apps, streaming tools, and architecture. Prior to that, he was a stay-at-home dad while consulting for startups after a career at legendary Silicon Valley companies like Netscape, Borland, and Calabra. Daniel grew up in Squaw Valley, California, and received a degree in physics from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Let's listen in to Daniel Clausen, interviewed by Tom Dennison in our startup grind. The way I like to start out is, tell us about you know, where you grew up, um, what kinds of things were you thinking or doing as a kid, and I don't know if there was ever any kind of entrepreneurial spark or, or whatever that, that popped up as you were growing up? Um, so I grew up in a ski area in California. Um, it turns out to be one of the, the premier ski areas of the United States, um, Squaw Valley, California. So I grew up in Squaw Valley. So this is a, 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 a very blue collar town year round that has this incredible crush of people that come to, to ski. Um, but those of us that live there really just lived a, a small mountain community life. Um, my my uh, father was a was a, uh, basically a business manager in Reno, Nevada, where I was born. So I was actually born in Nevada, spent a long time in Reno. Um, a lot of my family worked in, in throughout the casinos throughout the, the Reno, Nevada area. Uh, my mom was a nurse at the, at the ski area. So I grew up in this kind of weird environment that was not academic, not business. You know, the only, the only people that had really interesting jobs were maybe engineers that the uh, overall uh, equipment, so skiery equipment, uh, tram, tramway equipment, that sort of thing. Um, so I spent most of my time um, hanging out with my dad, who was a, a uh, avid pilot um, flying gliders and worked for the Desert Research Institute um, doing experiments. So I grew up around this incredibly crazy science community that did science lab experiments throughout the entire Sierra Nevada. Um, and I think one of those kind of aha moments was uh, spending time hiking up in the, in the high mountains of the Sierras to get to a trailer 
that lives on top of Squaw Peak that is the, the VOR beacon for all of the international, all the flights across the United States. But it's also where they did a lot of research. Um, so you would be up in the middle of absolutely nowhere and you'd come across uh, what was then the very first experiments for uh, color radar, uh, for cloud seeding. So being able to hang out with some of these people, one of the guys that uh, I spent a lot of time with founded some company that's now called the Sierra Nevada Corporation, which is a, a billion dollar defense contracting firm um, that does nothing but science equipment for defense contracting. Um, so it was this crazy thing. I'd spend most of my time jumping on a Greyhound bus, driving down to Berkeley, California, so that I could go to places like the, the Lawrence Hall of Science and the and the uh, Exploratorium and, and places like that where I could kind of explore the science side and technology side. Everybody else I hung out with were, were ski bums, you know. I, so cool. hanging out ski racing and bicycle racing and, and playing in the lake, well, that was a lot of fun. But, but the real interesting stuff to me was really the science. That's very cool. So, I mean, did that, did that lead to, I, I didn't know sort of your early background, and did that lead to software development? Or how did, how did you make the leap from that interest in science and technology, and, uh, and maybe it starts in college, and let's go from there. Yeah, I'm old enough that none of that existed when I was in high school. Well, <laughs> um, so I started out uh, studying physics uh, in college, and well, just before I got to college, a friend of mine actually, his, his parents ran the, the Berkeley um, uh, Research uh, Field Lab, which was not only is in the middle of nowhere, then you have to drive like 10 more miles to the middle of nowhere on a dirt road with no power. And that's where he grew up. Um, he actually had an Apple II computer, the, one of the very first ones ever made. So I spent a lot of time with him, but getting in and out of there was hard. Um, but studied physics in college uh, at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Um, and I was bicycle racing. I was a national level uh, bicycle racer coming from from my mountain background, that was kind of convenient to carry over. And then I spent all my time uh, studying physics. What I quickly learned studying physics was you can't do anything without building something in a lab that's hooked up to some kind of software. So you're doing data analysis. You have to measure stuff. The whole world is about measuring things. If you have kids, go buy them everything you possibly can to measure stuff. Weight, distance, brightness, color, just measure things. Measure everything and make sure they're curious about it. Um, but what was really interesting was everything that we did was wired up to something that had to measure or analyze or process data. So in order for me to have a job of anything that was going to be interesting, it was going to involve processing software. So I quickly learned to write code and manage odd bits of hardware um, and assemble things in, in different ways. So a lot of the things we would do would be, um, uh, my friend's dad would build uh, tracking equipment for coyotes, so we would we would uh, track uh, trap coyotes, uh, put collars on them, send them out in the wild, and then we would set up antenna mechanisms to be able to track uh, where they would be spending their time. Um, so it was kind of a, a, it's kind of maybe the beginning of, of this kind of maker movement, but really, really, really long time ago. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to ask you. So, um, you know, today we have this sort of rapid development, MVPs, lean startups, and, and all of that. Tell us about the product development when you first got started. And you know, what was that and, and the timelines associated with it? Um, so after school, I went to uh, work at a clothing company in San Francisco called Esprit Clothing. Um, so being 
uh, a young man, 23 years old, working for a fashion company in the middle of San Francisco was pretty awesome. Um, nothing good can come out of that. Um, and I was not able to get the job I wanted. Uh, they were building point-of-sale systems using IBM PCs, the very first uh, point-of-sales using a computer system. And it was a disaster. Um, it was just, it was not ready. The technology was not ready. I left there and went to a company called Borland International. Um, some people in the audience look like they might be old enough to know what that was. Um, Turbo Pascal, Turbo C, uh, a database called Paradox. I actually came in and managed the database called Paradox, the desktop database for DOS computers. Um, life cycles were 18 months. So it took us 18 months to build and ship. Um, half of that time was probably QA uh, in the, over the overall, you know, half the cost, uh, development cost. There was generally about a uh, two to one-to-one uh, -one ratio or one-to-two ratio of, of software engineers to uh, QA developers or software developers to QA engineers. However you want to say that. So. That's extraordinary. Now, I know you went to uh, after Borland, and I am old enough to remember. Yes, I do. Um, but um, I think you landed at another company after that, right? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that little company and, and what happened there? Uh, so I have a history of kind of breaking off of the company that I'm in and starting a lab within the, uh, within the company. So I actually worked temporarily at a, at a group in Borland where we were doing distributed database theory of using databases to send messaging systems um, pretty close to what Lotus Notes is, is, is how do you have a, a repository that multiple people have the same copy of the repository, but you have a very, very slow connection between them. Um, so distributed databases is actually a really interesting, challenging, hard problem um, from a software engineering point of view, mathematically uh, point of view. Uh, but we were building a messaging platform on that, and messaging was really interesting to me. So I, I left that company when uh, we actually shipped a product for MCI that was built on MCI Mail. Um, but I left that company and, we, and started, uh, joined a tiny startup that had uh, about 35 people in it um, that was called Collabra Software. And we built a add-on for the enterprise for collaboration. So think of what um, Slack is today. So uh, uh, an earlier version of Slack that was built on a messaging architecture rather than a, in that case, that's built on a, on a, on a, uh, a different architecture. Um, I, I love Slack, it's pretty cool. Um, but we were bought uh, shortly after by a company called Netscape. Um, and uh, that turned into five years of managing the Netscape navigator and client uh, projects. So just to put this in context, so everybody familiar with Netscape, I hope. Uh, little plug here, by the way, uh, Startup Grind Global in February, we actually have Mark Andreessen is one of our guests. Pretty proud of that. So um, yeah, it's huge. So we're talking about, this is like 1995-ish, right? So I mean, think about, and um, again, I'm old enough to remember the early, early days of uh, the web, if you will, and Netscape sort of ushered that to the masses, I guess. Um, tell us about that time and, and, and being a part of a company like Netscape that got so much attention and, and where it ended up. Um, it, it was definitely a crazy time. Um, I don't know that we knew it at the time, though. Um, we were... You know, I ended up leaving Netscape when I was interviewing a second nanny to take over the nighttime shift. 
because the first nanny couldn't cover the number of hours that my wife and I were out of the house. Um, so my wife worked for uh, Gartner Group, which is an analyst firm, and I was at Netscape. And I don't, we never got home before 8, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. So it was a really, really, really busy time. It was exciting because everything you were doing was just, um, it was new and innovative and, and the first time it had ever been done in, in many cases. Um, so it was, it's easy, and I know from anybody that's doing a startup, it's so easy to get caught up in the excitement about what's going on. Um, it was a complete crush of people trying to understand how to use the technology, what could it be used for, how could it be used. Um, all of the wrong companies, of course, were the ones to adopt it first, but that's okay that they provided a lot of needed capital to continue to build a lot of things. So our commerce servers, a lot of our, a lot of the uh, SSL connection technology, a lot of online uh, transactions and, and financial transactions were all, were all just driven by um, interesting people doing interesting things with the technology and the platform. Um, trying to think of crazy war stories from, from that time. Um, it was the browser war, so competing against Microsoft. Microsoft systematically put the first five companies that I'd ever worked for out of business. So they, they got rid of Borland, they got rid of Calabra, uh, they got rid of Netscape. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. They were, they were, they were the evil empire. Um, so I kind of feel that down, down deep in my roots. Um, but we, we were inventing things on the fly. So I was, um, I was flying regularly to, uh, to Maryland because at the time, uh, encryption was considered, uh, was classified as a, as a munition by the US government. And I had to meet with the NSA regularly over, over the differences between 56-bit um, and 128-bit encryption technology. And it was actually illegal to ship in France for, for quite some time. We actually couldn't ship the product in France. It's classified, it was classified as a munition because the ability to encrypt data. So it, it was you know, unreal the kinds of new things that you would uncover accidentally. Um, we also at a time where we could invent things on the fly. So because there wasn't a standard yet in a lot of the areas of HTML or, or HTTP or SSL or some of these things, um, we would just decide what to do, invent it and ship it. Um, and then that pretty much became the standard because it was what was running um, by and large in the, in the field. Um, of course, that's not the way anything could get done today. So languages like JavaScript have a long, long process of trying to evolve them and, and mature them. At the time, we would just, you know, if you, if you wanted to invent a new Java command or new Java uh, parameter, you would, just, you would just do it and you would ship it and then you would document it later. I'm curious about sort of Silicon Valley in general at that time. So I don't know if everybody knows the history of Silicon Valley, but it actually goes way before, long before the internet, and literally goes back to the late 30s when Stanford actually developed an entrepreneurship program for engineers. And out of that came the Hewlett's and the Packard's of the world, and that sort of created this, um, I guess, nascent kind of ecosystem. But tell us about the ecosystem in the mid-90s. You know, here in, in Chicago's been exploding over the past five years in creating our ecosystem, and Startup Grind is certainly part of it. But what was it like back then? I mean, today everything's so transparent, everybody's so open. You know, tell us about what, what was the environment like? Um, I think it's always been pretty open. Uh, 
in, a in an area like that where a company like Borland gets crushed by Microsoft, everybody shatters and, you're, and they distribute throughout the valley. So you have what we would call the mafia, the, the Borland mafia, the Netscape mafia, the Apple mafia, that would be working at all of these other companies where you knew somebody. So um, interestingly, nobody, no, none of the early developers got into um, Google early, which was really curious. Um, there's a whole story behind that. Um, but you, you would find people that you had worked with just about every place in the valley, and everywhere you went, you would run into somebody, and you would say, hey, what are you working on? And, and it, was, it was very, very open in that. Um, it's really because of that university uh, environment, and then once you start getting that kind of flywheel momentum of attracting these kinds of people um, into the area, uh, you then keep going. Um, raising money was a lot, lot, lot harder than it is today, and a lot more difficult to find um, uh, venture capitalists that really understood what it was you were trying to build and how you were trying to build it. So um, a lot of the, the Sequoia and uh, uh, Kleiner Perkins really kind of, un, uh, kind of unleashed that when the, the Netscape IPOs and several other that followed that, that really started to say, what well, this is real technology that real people are going to be spending money on. These are real businesses that are really going to take off. Um, you didn't have to have a shrink wrap product on the shelf. Um, in fact, I was in the room when we invented this idea that the, the license uh, didn't have to be attached to the software itself. You could download the software and get a license later and, and, and qualify it later. Little things like that just, just exploded capabilities throughout the valley that, that, and, and it would just ripple through uh, immediately. People would take advantage of that. So you'd see something like that and then immediately copy it and everybody else would be doing the same thing. Um, interesting, uh, Apple has never been a company that very many people ever wanted to work at. Um, it has a terrible, terrible reputation in the valley, which outside of the valley, you don't see it. Um, they've never paid engineers particularly well. They work really, really hard, um, and there's not a lot of stock options. So many, many, many people that I know that were early Apple employees really, they, they gave enormous amount of their time and energy into Apple without having the kind of benefits that many of the other companies, people worked at the other companies, um, were able to see. Um, so it created this really kind of um, un, you know, you'd go there, you'd work for a year or two, and then you'd leave. Uh, you'd learn a lot. It'd be a good experience. It'd be a phenomenal uh, working environment. But the design, the, the product, the, the, the quality was all phenomenal, but you would just come out exhausted and not, not uh, enriched in the way that a lot of people around you had been. At our first global event, I actually met the lead engineer for the first iPhone. And so he reported directly to Steve Jobs. And it was very much as you just described. And I can't even repeat in public what Steve Jobs called him. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. Yeah. So, um, but in any case, so let's go back to Netscape and how long you stuck around there and what, what attracted you or what got you out of Netscape. What was the next thing? Uh, so I was at Netscape for five years. Um, on the marketing side, so product management, I ran a product management team for client-side software. Um, so we reported up through this crazy guy named Mike Homer, probably one of the most brilliant um, marketing people I've ever met. Um, and you know, it, really fun, really exciting, moving fast. Um, we knew Microsoft was moving in. I, I actually knew the Microsoft team pretty well. I'd, I'd worked in the database wars previous to the browser wars with the same guy who was now leading the browser war against me at Netscape. So, um, you know, we would go out to dinner together when we were in town. You know, we'd, go to, we'd go to a conference and we'd spend time together at the dinner table because we all knew each other. 
And then we'd go back to battling each other to death. Um, it was kind of funny. So the, the, uh, it was pretty clear that the browser was not going to be a viable product on its own with, net, with Microsoft bundling theirs in the, in the product. So um, I led the group that uh, initiated the process of turning the, the product into an open source effort. And it turns out that taking a closed source product and making it open source is a lot, lot harder than it might, than you might think. Um, if I would take a, a grep editor to the source base and search for things um, like my name to find it just all over the place with the, I really don't want to add, I won't say these things um, on camera here, so um, I don't want to add this piece of code for this company, but the product manager's making me do it um, in much, much more colorful language. This is the wrong thing to do, I hate this, uh, but I have to do it because I'm being told I have to. Um, so lots of profanity, lots of uh, specific vendors, specific companies that we were trying to either work around a bug or to support some request that, that, that um, was a large part of a big sale that had to come in. Um, it turned out to be a lot, lot more work than we ever imagined. So it, it took a long time to kind of sanitize um, the overall product. Um, what, what did it take to get me out of there? It took me, it took me sitting there interviewing the second nanny um, to, to get me to say, it's time to make a lifestyle change. So I had um, two kids and said, this is, I'm, I'm done, um, and decided to leave the valley completely and ended up picking an area. I, I temporarily lived in um, Atlanta, Georgia and worked for an agency, internet agency there, um, and then moved to the Virginia area where the best public schools in the United States that I could find. So I laid the map out. We said, where are the best public schools in the United States? We put three of them on the, on the map and said, okay, we're picking that one and, and moved. That's awesome. So <clears throat> I know that as an entrepreneur, I'm sure wonderful years at home that you'd spent, but probably lots of wheels spinning and churning and wondering, you know, what's next. And so I guess, Tell us how much time you spent um, at home and what kinds of things were you co contemplating and what was your next move? Um, so I had a rough couple of years. Um, when you've been in the middle of a kind of a, a, a scene like that, um, nothing else compares. And I know you probably know this from, from doing a startup or if you've done a startup or two, once you get that kind of excitement, that adrenaline, that that um, feeling of you're building stuff, you're creating stuff, uh, it's really hard to want to um, say, oh look, here's the, here's the Washington DC version of that company that's headquartered in Silicon Valley, and I might be able to be a sales engineer for them, or, or some kind of you know, assist in sales or development or, or business development for that particular company in that location. Um, so you go and you look for all the startups that are going on out there. So I would look around and see the, the different startups. Um, my uh, wife at the time was, was selling real estate and doing very well to the point where we were like, okay, we're going to need a nanny again. Um, so I said, no, I'm going to be a stay-at-home dad. So I was a stay-at-home dad for four years, five years, five years with the kids. Um, by far the hardest job I've ever done. Uh, <laughs> way harder than shipping software. <laughs> Um, but during that time, I would have extra time on my hands and I would consult with um, other startups in the area. So whether it was uh, writing business plans or which now would become a, a, you know, a lean canvas or a business model canvas, um, building pitch decks, uh, going to, to hooking people up with venture, um, going and doing the venture pitches with the companies and then 
um, sometimes joining them as a as on the advisory board or as the as the initial um, head of product until they could get themselves going. Um, so I did that. Um, I don't know for four three years. I, I intermittently dabbled in in all kinds of really interesting technologies. Um, one thing that's really interesting about working at an agency, um, a development agency, or being a product person, you know, a small company or a large company. There's this pendulum I think product people swing back and forth on. It's really fun to own a product and ship a product because it's your thing. You, you, you are just absolutely invested. Every decision that goes into it, you're, you're completely invested in it and you love to see it succeed and, and get out there. And it's absolutely exhausting. Um, and when you have things uh, that, are, that are older or, or, or blocking you, they don't evolve as fast as you would always like them to, but, it, but it's your thing. When you work in an agency, um, you get to see 60 projects a year, um, 15 of them really in depth. You get to work with all kinds of different uh, technical backend platforms, uh, payment platforms, social interaction mechanisms, um, but none of them are yours. So you might build a strategy for another company and then you hand it off to them and they just absolutely fail to execute on your strategy. And you're just wondering what happened? Why, why didn't that go the way it should have? Or you try to coach them in product management to go to oversee all of those really, really critical steps in the beginning. Um, they get really addicted to your, to your uh, guidance, but they can't afford the agency pricing over time. So they have to break it off and eventually take it on their own. Um, but it's really fantastic to get that, that exposure to so many different business models, technology platforms, user inex uh, experience, um, design challenges, all the things that go with it. So I think there's a natural kind of pendulum that swings back and forth. Several of the product people that I know swing back and forth on that pendulum. So it's interesting. I mean, you've worked with so many different types of startups, I guess. Is there, you know, and probably seeing some that succeed, probably most fail. Um, if there's a common thread that you could say is the biggest mistake that these early stage startups make, what do you think that might be? Um, it's easy. That's that's a that's a no-brainer. Um, the biggest mistake is going after too large of an audience um, right away. So focusing on how you're going to get from you know the hundred thousand to the million is really interesting. How are you going to get from the two to the hundred? How are you going to get to the hundred to the five hundred? It turns out those are really really hard things to do. Um, getting the first hundred people to be purchasing your software is, or your solution of some kind, is not trivial. Getting from 100 to 200, that's a lot easier than getting from zero to 100. Um, so I'll, I'll echo the Peter Thiel book, Zero to One, right? So if you haven't read Zero to One, go read Zero to One. But the idea of going from, some, from nothing to something is really infinitely more challenging. Well, it can't be infinitely, it's never be done. Extremely uh, challenging compared to going from one to two. So pattern matching, uh, uh, growing is a very different side of the business than trying to get from, from zero to one. Was this, uh, let's, let's put a time frame in this. So was this about the time that the whole lean model was, emer lean model was emerging or was this kind of pre, um, his name escapes me, who's sort of the, the, well yeah, Steve Blank, of course, who's sort of the guru, yeah, Eric Reese, yeah. 
Um, so this is, in, this is just at the beginning of the lean phase. So lean is a, is a really important concept. Um, it evolves out of a, of a previous concept that's called extreme programming. And lean is kind of the second, the, the, the more um, usable version of that. So agile development and, and lean development. Um, so it's, it's really following the Steve Blank model is just absolutely unlocks so many pieces. So if you haven't seen the startup guide, Steve Reese's, excuse me, uh, Steve Blank's book, which originally was called The Four Steps of the Epiphany, the second version is Four Steps of the Epiphany or the Startup Guide. Oh, yeah. Re re required reading. Um, it is the Bible of, of this game. Um, Steve Blank and, and partnered up with Eric Reese. Eric Reese learned most of what he did in partnership with Steve Blank. And it's Steve Blank's um, guidance that really set this whole lean startup um, piece in motion. And then Eric Reese came through with his book, which is, which is absolutely phenomenal. Um, but uh, highly recommended, definitely the right uh, initial first places to go. So if you have this idea, the question then is, how do you know that you have the right it? It's, it's how do you validate that the thing that you're building, people actually want? And the Lean Startup starts with that concept and, and takes that, co that concept pretty far, but getting that, that what is the it correctly um, is really interesting. There's a great, if you, for those that are taking notes on various um, things to go look up, uh, there's a Google engineer that created something called pretotyping, pretotyping, where it talks about um, validate that you have the right it before you build it right. Um, so building it wrong to validate that people actually like what you're trying to do before you spend the time and money to do it right is absolutely critical. A quick break from the episode for some recent startup headlines. Fashion jewelry brand Bobble Bar has raised $20 million in a Series C round from Excel, Graycroft, Birch Creative, Aspect, and others. The company primarily targets 25 to 40-year-old females, monitors trends, and designs products to meet current fashion demands. Offers can get to market in as little as four weeks. They've raised $36 million to date. Female-led Bay Area startups received 8% of all A rounds in 2015, according to Female Founder Fund. The report also claims that of the 204 A's raised, 16 were headed by women, a drop of 30% year-over-year. The founder's NYC counterparts equaled 13%. Google may face a UK parliamentary committee over a $186 million tax agreement. Labor MP Meg Hillier is calling for the Alphabet Company and Tax Authority to explain how the deal for back taxes was reached. This follows criticism from experts and politicians who claim the company should have paid $2.8 billion since 2005 instead of the $100 million already received. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, it's interesting. I've had uh, Emerson Sparts. I don't know if folks know who Emerson Sparts is, a local founder here. Um, his company has this approach where any new product development, they actually build it as ugly as possible. They have a contest because if it solves a problem, it doesn't matter how ugly it is. So um, in any case, so let's, let's move forward a bit and tell us about, you know, getting to Marriott. And let's talk a bit about, you know, your current role and I love what you guys are doing internally. I actually admittedly was not aware, but I'd love to hear about how you got there and what you guys are up to. Uh, so I got, I got dragged off the couch finally um, by a guy that was at uh, PBS television. Um, so I, I did the strategy and all the mobile apps for PBS TV. Um, this is kind of an unfair advantage in the startup world. So if you, if you make out your list of, of your various, you know, your lean canvas and 
One of the unfair advantages is you already have several million people that you could ship to at a moment's notice, right? So at PBS, I had that unfair advantage. At Marriott, I have that unfair advantage. Um, it doesn't mean that you're home free, though, because you have to make sure that you're building something people still want. And being able to get 5 million people tell you that they like it is actually um, sometimes the wrong thing because with enough people, somebody will like it, right? So it, it actually can give you really false, um, false positives. Um, so I got off the couch at PBS. PBS decided to rebuild their entire infrastructure on a cloud-based architecture, bring in um, all new product managers, and redesign from the, from the ground up. And it was just phenomenal. You, you had to hunt down uh, things in, in the craziest places. So I would have to, to be in the legal department figuring out that the contracts that describe what the technology for mobile means in legal terms was currently incorrect and that we needed to change that language so that we could distribute the products the way we wanted to. So it didn't, you know, and that's really, if you're a product manager, you can't think of anything as being a boundary. Um, if you're gonna ship the greatest product that needs to be shipped, uh, you have to go, if it's a PR issue, if it's a marketing issue, if it's a legal issue, um, you have to go hunt those things down and, and work them out. So you need friends in all these departments. Um, one of the hardest things sometimes is getting the, the accounting department to understand how you do the accounting for sprint-based development. So all the accounting departments I've ever worked with really want to have a contract in place that says, hey, if you breach this contract, I can sue you. Um, well, in, in, in agile development, it's, well, you build what you're supposed to build for the next three weeks, and if, if that worked great, we'll build the next, we'll decide what to do for the next three weeks. That doesn't fit any legal contract or any accounting model that most corporations have. So feel free to, to really cross boundaries um, as necessary to go do that, no matter how small or how large the, or, the, the project that you're working on is. Um, so that set me up uh, for Marriott. I, I interviewed at Marriott uh, for a Marriott Labs um, position, so innovation and strategy. And it's really that background that I picked up at PBS of large organizational dynamics of um, how, do you how do you create startup efforts inside of a large company? So how many people are currently working in a larger company while you're doing your startups? So we have a few people here that are kind of surviving their current day jobs while they're working on other things. Um, those companies are really great places to practice a lot of the same techniques that you need in a startup environment. So things like um, how do you get funding on a project? Build out the same kind of pitch deck. Build out the same um, business model canvas that you normally would for a startup. Practice on those internally, and you'll find it's amazing how successful those are and how much the company has is, is really been craving somebody who says, look, here's an idea, and here's the strategic thinking behind it, and here's the impact that we're going to be able to have with it. Here's the competitors. Here's the revenue side and the cost side. I've thought those things all the way through. Um, now let's have an interesting conversation. And it is, it's practice for the startup world, and it is absolutely invaluable. That's awesome. So I'd love to hear about some of the products that you guys are working on with Marriott, if you can share. And give us, and also too, um, for all of us entrepreneurs out there, give us your, your, your favorite that failed, and then maybe your least favorite that succeeded. Did I just throw you a curveball? Yeah. Yeah. All right, I'll take it. And I, and I want to get some questions from you guys. I want you guys to participate um, in this as you, as you have uh, questions along this way. 
Um, so what are some of the things that we're trying to do? So uh, I divide innovation across multiple fronts and same, same kind of thinking that you would do in a startup environment. Um, is it a technology innovation? Is it a business model innovation? Um, is, it, is it just kind of out there in left field? I mean, what, what exactly are you trying to innovate on? And are you trying to create multiple innovations at the same time? Um, so anybody who's a fan of, of the Steve Blank and, and Eric Reese, I hope is also a fan of the Jeffrey Moore series. So if you haven't read Jeffrey Moore's book, um, uh, Escape Velocity, highly recommended. So um, great, great, great conversation there. But the, the ideas are really across the board. So if it's a company that's, that we're seeing a lot of uh, uh, interesting um, development from like Airbnb, for example. Well, what, what kind of innovation is Airbnb? Um, first, of the, I love the Ben Horowitz story. Airbnb was a really, really bad idea uh, until it became a great idea. And that's really, startups are about having bad ideas. Um, if it was a good idea, somebody's already doing it. It's really the bad ideas that are interesting. And then trying to vet which bad ideas have real legs underneath them and which are just plain old bad ideas. So you look at you look at a technology like you know a product like Secret. You're like, okay, that's just a bad idea. That's just not going to end well. That's just going to go wrong. Some it's, nothing can come good will ever come out of that. Um, and then you get something like Uber or Airbnb, where very early on people are saying, and if you talk to the investors who all passed on it, it's like this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. This is a bad idea. Um, well, it's not a technology innovation. The technology's been around for a long time. Very rarely have I seen things that are actual technology innovations. So blockchain, technology innovation. Couldn't be done without a significant, serious, hard technology innovation. Um, but most of the things that we see, Airbnb and Uber and all these really interesting companies are getting a lot of press, the unicorns, it's all about a business model innovation. And in many cases, it's a business model innovation that's designed to be disruptive. So disruption is, is how do I get under the market that people don't care about? Marriott is not interested in the person who wants to sleep on your couch. Okay, it's just, we're just not. Um, however, however, if you think about what does it take to manage a property, they're starting to build what's what we would call the property management system. It's a property management system that measure, that's, that rents out beds. Okay, well that property management system is really actually growing very, very nicely, and the cost to activate and add new properties to it is zero. It can grow really fast when the activation cost is zero. So it's a very, very disruptive technology because it's after a market segment that we're not interested in, but once they move up segment, if they can, if they can evolve that platform to move up segment, it's a very disruptive um, potential technology platform. So that's something that we're really interested in. So that's an area that we spend a lot of our, our time and energy playing with different models, different business disruptors, um, different technologies that would work in that same area. Um, some of the other things that we're doing, we're, uh, the mobile technology is not really exciting when you're on property right now. It really needs to catch up. Um, a lot of our technology is built around the transactions of booking a room. Well, booking a room is really not interesting. I mean, booking a room doesn't help you while you get to the property to say, what's for dinner at the bar? Can I, can I see when happy hour is? How do, I, how do I interact with the actual property? So we're doing um, many, many experiments in that area. Uh, we do about a billion dollars of, of revenue on our, on our digital platform per month. Um, so it's, it's a platform that you have to be really, really careful with. Um, a few minutes of outage, a few hours of outage of that platform is catastrophic. So it's not a place where you do much, quote unquote, innovation and experimentation. You don't just kind of run a pilot 
um, on top of a platform like that. So we, we do a lot of things that are um, designed to simulate or emulate the actual environment. So I spent a lot of my time um, building API backends that mimic what the Marriott API backend is. This way I can create a, a prototype that will, that will look and feel to a user exactly like the Marriott experience. In fact, the data transfers are using the identical payload protocol mechanisms as our, as our production one, so I can easily move it across when it's ready to say, when somebody says, hey, let's take this live, let's, let's prototype this on 10 properties. I can just transfer it straight across and it, and it works. So understanding the technology stacks, understanding how all these things fit together, um, very, very much part of how you can uh, create innovation. Now, I've dodged your question on, on some of the things that have gone badly. Um, I'll give you a startup story that's not Marriott, the things that went badly. I worked at a company that, we, that was called Xtone. Um, we had a startup where you pick up the, the handset of your telephone at home. Why do you have a dial tone? What does it do? Now, occasionally it beeps or something. It tells you you have a message. But why can't you just talk to the thing? Why can't you pick up the phone and ask it a question and say, deliver me a pizza, or what's the score of the game, or call my mom? Um, so. How do you do the recognition? How do you build on that platform? Well, very quickly, you say, it's not a technology problem. The te it, it's a hard technology problem, but it's not, not, not solvable. The business innovation for the people who own that phone in your house is either going to be the, the current carriers, AT&T, Verizon, that sort of thing, or it's going to be Comcast um, and you know, the, the television platforms. That's, that's it. You're, you're dead. Those people are not interested in innovating. So no matter how awesome your solution might be, no matter how great an engineering collection that you were able to pull from Carnegie Mellon speech, um, it's not, it's not going to happen. You're, you're going to end up needing to do a business innovation in a business model, which then could lead to a technology innovation later. So you have to make sure you get which innovation is the critical path and make sure you've solved that one first and then go do the, the other pieces of the innovation. Um, so, w within Marriott, and how, how do you avoid getting false positives? So, if you have this sort of great testing environment and the opportunity to test with, I guess, millions of users, um, how do you avoid that, oh my gosh, we got 100,000 people to use this, but yet it might have turned off 200,000 people? So this is really what, what I bring to Marriott. Um, I'm not more innovative than anybody else at Marriott. The innovation is in the people in the building. There's, there's no doubt that some of the brightest minds in hospitality are already inside those walls. It's not that we haven't thought of those ideas. It's what are the practices that you need to do to pull those out of the organization. I use exactly the same techniques that you guys use. I rely on going back to the original startup principles to say, how do I validate this idea against real users giving me real feedback? So what tools, what techniques, what platforms can I use to get to 100,000 people? Well, sometimes it's to get to eight people. You know, I do intercepts just like you guys do. I get a stack of Starbucks cards. Um, I arm my business partner with them, and we walk around with paper prototypes and do intercepts at a hotel or even intercepts at a mall. It's not hard to do. Paper prototyping and simple um, reward management to get people to fill out your survey, it's doable. Um, we use tools like UserZoom. We build things in, in, in Vision. Um, same technology, same tools that all the startups uh, have access to and should be using. If you're not using them, certainly um, start using those. 
You can build a prototype that you can then wrap. So I, I build prototypes in Envision all the time. We wrap them with a technology called UserZoom, which allows us to do a emailing. We email those out to, to you know, 900 people, 1,000 people, um, and then we'll get probably 150 to 200 completes on a, on a test. And from that, we can derive some pretty interesting information. Very cool. So why don't we uh, sort of pause there and open it up to questions. So the question is, can we, can we do A-B testing or multivariant testing um, on our existing site? So we do have Adobe Test and Target. Um, it is actually deployed in some cases. Um, a lot of the web technology we have is a little bit older and a little bit more brittle than we would like to admit. Um, and it, we're already kind of slower than we want to be with the number of tags that are loading on the page. So loading more tags and another chunk of JavaScript to have multivariant on the page is a little bit dicey. But we've actually started doing multivariant on the pages for the places that, it, that we can. Um, if, it, if it's bigger than simply you know, uh, moving things around, changing colors, small widget, widget controls, um, then we have to go to a different technique, but absolutely. So the question is, are we using things um, like visual tracking, eye tracking, um, to look and see how people impress uh, on a page? Yeah, we've got a usability lab in the basement, and we have all of the cool tools, uh, tools and techniques. Um, those, are the, those are the projects. They, to run those things are fairly expensive, but we do do them. Um, but we do them once we get down to a, a, narrower, a narrower gap. So that would be uh, qual testing, um, not quant testing. So we do both quant and qual, and, but absolutely every technique you can think of we, we pursue. Um, I don't know that that's really relevant for something in the startup world or some things that you're just trying to validate just because the overhead to create and, and run those kinds of tests are expensive. How do you stay nimble inside of a large organization? Um, sometimes you don't. Um, so the, the single biggest barrier to innovation in most corporations um, is the yearly budget cycle. So the departments are locked in with what they're going to spend for 2016 already. They were locked in probably two months ago. And those objectives are, are sometimes pretty challenging to meet as is, not including the pop-up projects that will occur and the 20% of time people should spend doing risky, non-standard behaviors. So that's really what the change that we want to try to bring to the table is. And again, that's really what the startup community is really showing the demonstration of. In some cases, we'll see an entire company get um, uh, invented, deployed, and sold for hundreds of millions of dollars while we're still in our planning phase for the same kind of offering, right? So when you see that happening in the industry over and over again, you have to say, wait a minute, this, this, there is a different way that we have to allow for this. Um, and the budgeting, attacking the budgeting process is actually the, the first part of that and turns out to be one of the more challenging parts of it. So not exactly a startup problem since, since those are usually designed around big, large budgets, uh, but carving off 1% of, of somebody's department budget to say, let's do some, some innovative um, experimentation usually starts the game um, correctly. So go, go get 1% or go argue for a 1% experimentation budget. Do you go through the whole process of putting together a pitch deck? And tell us about that experience. And, and is it, do you have like a set budget or you have to fight for every penny that you get? Or how does that work? Um, so in the case, most corporate innovation groups function a lot like, again, a lot like a startup would function. Um, how do you put together the overall business plan so that you can get funding? So think of, if you're getting venture money, you're probably getting it in tranches, um, or if you're working with an organization, so they're gonna fund you in tranches. 
So we work on exactly the same model. So in the first tranche, you're going to probably be spending somewhere in the order of 30 to 70 thousand um, dollars on a on a project that might be a little bit higher than what you guys can do in a startup but that's for for a large corporation that's actually a very very small amount of money um, so with a with a thirty thousand dollar budget or so we will um, put together a development team that will create a a prototype whether it is a a, a just a sketches wireframes through uh, clickable prototypes um, engaging prototypes so we can actually get some feedback on them. We need real user testing data, so actually outside the building. We want data, we don't want opinions. Nobody's opinion matters. We want data from users. Um, we put together a pitch deck, we put together a business model canvas or a lean canvas, depending on um, which group, uh, the department, is, which, which direction um, that is going. Um, and we usually back that with a competitive analysis and a financial model um, that's a little bit more in depth. Uh, do you ever get folks from the outside that are uh, presenting to you? I mean, do you ever look at outside opportunities? Do we look at outside opportunities? Um, we hope that people will come to us with technology that already works uh, to solve a particular problem. So one of the real challenges on our side is we're a really big company. It's really hard for us to work with a startup, or actually, it's really hard for a startup to be able to handle the kind of volume that a company like ours can do out of the gate. Um, but we'll work with them um, and kind of help coach them into the right position. But most, a lot of these companies, uh, the smaller ones, aren't really ready to be production scale at the kind of scale that we, we would like them to be. Um, or their technology hasn't been proven out at a, at a larger scale. So we'll go pr prove some things out on a, on a smaller scale. We'll test things. We'll prototype things in some properties. Um, a lot of things come into us to go do that, and that's one of the great uh, roles of my group is to go um, not only look for an avenue for companies saying, hey, I've got something that you guys need to look at because it's new, it's innovative, it's exciting. Um, we also turn around and pitch it the other direction. So uh, you might not know this, but Marriott is one of the largest transportation companies in the United States. We run shuttles. We run a lot of shuttles. Have you ever been standing in Chicago or Denver waiting for a hotel shuttle? You probably don't do this in Chicago because you live here. Um, waiting for a shuttle is one of the most miserable experiences you can have. So we were, we're, we're still looking for that company that has the Uber version of where is the shuttle or let me let the property know that I want a shuttle so that the sh and be able to say, okay, I'm, I'm at stop six, but I'm not standing by the, by the gate. I'm inside where it's warm. Um, let me see where you are. Let me communicate with the driver. Let the driver communicate with the property um, so that we can run this. So we know it's out there. We know somebody has this or at least has most of it. Um, we would love to use a technology like that. We're not going to build it ourselves. So we have a number of these things that we kind of are out there looking for all the time. How long would uh, $30,000 last in an organization like Marriott? Um, that would usually last about six weeks. So how big is the dev team that we need to put together? So um, we usually, we, we, the way I break it down is we have a, a project leader who's overseeing the project. They're going to probably spend 20% or so of their time on that particular effort. Um, we have developers in Romania who do a lot of fantastic development for us. Um, as well as several other off-site locations. I use, any, I use lots and lots of different um, small development shops uh, in Northern Virginia, in Utah, in California, 
Um, if there's any in Chicago that you guys want me to know about, certainly let me know about that. Um, where we would like to have access to great design talent and great development talent. Um, so we're usually, you know, we're usually burning um, a development team. So if a larger project was probably running about 15K a week on development, but on an early stage where you're just vetting an idea, um, you don't need as much development resource. You're really worried about design. Um, and if you can do, uh, we'll usually lend a designer from our internal organization to give guidance to a designer in an outside firm. Um, and then we just run all the internal numbers ourselves, run all the internal programs. And yes, it's a lean, it's a lean process, very lean process. So are, am I, and I'm pulling in a lot of other resources to, in addition to the 30K that I use on that. Well, I did give you a range of 30 to 70K, and there's a reason that 70K is on the upper end of that. Um, so uh, there's a great um, uh, slide. So one of the things that you learn in, in product, and certainly as long as I've been in product, is, is in any venture um, uh, person that you talk to is pattern matching. So in pattern matching, you're looking for how is this done? Who else has done something similar? What's like this that's already been done that's been successful? How can we take something that exists, um, that has failed, that, that, that's already been successful, is wildly succeeding, and look for a pattern from that that we can take advantage of? So by far, the first thing we do is pattern match off of what else we can do. Um, there's a great slide that was put out by IDEO and um, Harvard Business School, HBS, that looks at the different phases of potential prototyping. So one of the things that you guys might get in arguments with is what is a prototype? What does the word prototype mean? I mean, I've, I've lost six weeks of my life in knockdown, drag out fights over the word prototype. Because um, it means very different things to different people and it means different levels of commitment of, of resources and, and, and capability. So look at that because it's a great idea that says, how do you start with sketches on a napkin? Because that can be a prototype to how do I deploy in 10 properties with real guests, that can be a prototype, um, and everything in between. So, yeah, if you if you want to talk and you want to look at numbers, I'd be happy to I'd be happy to break it out. But um, uh, sometimes, you know, it's it's internal meetings, it's people putting uh, decks together and putting pitches together, and then reusing the the the, the templates that we use for um, uh, uh, pitch decks, things like that. Well, why don't we uh, end it right there, and why don't we give it up for our great guest, Daniel Clausen. Awesome. Thank you very much. Startup Grind is supported by Soylent, the galaxy's easiest meal. Soylent is a nutritionally complete, ready-to-drink meal in a bottle. A simple solution to the substantial amount of time and money most people spend maintaining healthy diets. The latest formula, Soylent 2.0, offers a pleasantly subtle flavor, a smooth texture, and a lasting fullness. Soylent began as a crowd-funded startup. After reaching fundraising goals within just two hours of the campaign's launch, Soylent attracted the attention of venture capitalists, allowing the company to scale to the multi-million dollar market leader it is today. Having been there themselves, Soylent supports the entrepreneurial spirit in everyone. Learn more and subscribe at Soylent.com. Use the promo code StartupGrind for 10% off your first